Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Just a couple of verses, but each of them have some nuance. So I want you to be thinking we'll not only learn about relating to one another, but hopefully we can learn a little bit about uh, even some hermeneutics, some tools of interpretation. All right. And so let's look at Romans chapter 5 or Romans 15 and verse 5 for our next instruction on how we should relate to one another. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. What does it mean for God to be a God of endurance? Any thoughts? God of great patience. Patience. Uh, This word endurance in, in our English minds becomes the idea of strenuous exertion, and yet somehow, even though you're weary, you want to quit, you keep pressing on. Um, that, that's kind of a, a development of the word over the years, um, especially biblically, but even in the English language, it was, it was more the idea of patience. Of, uh, in, in the Greek word here, it's the word to remain under. So the weight is pressing down, and yet instead of escaping it, you, you remain under uh, I like the illustration of, of, of a weightlifter. Uh, you can picture somebody laying on their back on that bench and doing the bench press, and they're pressing that weight up, and as they're slowing down, getting tired, that weight is, is bearing down on them, but they, they stay under it. They're going to keep pushing, and even if they are at that point where the weight equals their push and it's not moving, they're still being Patient in the biblical sense. They're bearing up under the weight. Uh, That's one of the words for patience in the Greek New Testament. The other one has to do with the idea of having a a long fuse. Um, I like to call it ear-chewing patience. If you've ever raised puppies, uh, those little pups can be chewing on mom's ear and tail and crawling all over, and the mother dog just sits there like, please sell these puppies off and make money, right? Uh, but there's that patience where they're just gnawing on her and she just puts up with it. Uh, it's a patience there, a long fuse, and not easily bothered. But this word is to bear up under. And so when we hear that God is a God of patience, suddenly we're thinking, oh, okay, this, this is reminding us of a, of a faithful character that, that doesn't get antagonized or inflamed. He's a merciful God, slow to wrath, the Bible says, ready to forgive. So all of that comes to bear here when we think of God, as in this language, the God of endurance, or you might want to jot the word patience there. Elsewhere in your Bible, that Bible you have, it will be translated as patience. So both of those words, patience, endurance, fit, uh, but just don't think of God getting tired and having to talk himself into, come on, stay with it. God doesn't do that. Uh, But God is patient. He is long-suffering. 
uh, with us. King James uses patience. Patience, sure. Um, and so would Hebrews 12, let us run the race with patience, whereas some translations would have run with endurance. Uh, and that's true. Uh, the words mean that, but especially when it comes to endurance, we don't want to think God tires or gets worn out. Um, so that's, that's a little check for that English word as we think of it in reference to God. So we're seeing that God is a God of patience or endurance, and he's a God of encouragement. So that God is granting you in this prayer to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that you together may with one voice glorify God. In other words, Paul is praying that God would shape your character to be more like his own. He wants you to reflect the kind of patience that he has with you. So if you need a marriage session this morning, here it is. The God who is patient with you as a sinner is saying that you should be patient to others who are sinners. Uh, the God who was sinned against by you and yet is patient, long-suffering, merciful, ready to forgive, is telling you you should demonstrate that character to others who sin against you. We saw that in the parable uh, in Matthew where one servant is forgiven this astronomical debt. Uh, it would take hundreds of years to pay off that debt in, in English dollars, you know, in an annual salary, and yet he's forgiven all that debt, and yet he goes to someone who owes him, you know, a few thousand dollars and is wringing the guy's neck saying, give me what you owe me. Well, God's saying that, that is not the spirit of the believers in their relationships to one another. Uh, rather, picture this God of patience and a God of encouragement and now live that way to others. And suddenly, it's not about the person I'm serving. It's not about if they deserve it, if there was any merit, if there was any virtue in that person. It's simply, I'm looking at the standard God and imitating that. I'm not responding to the person. This one another isn't based on some kind of mutuality, and if they're something, then I'll be something in return. Um, what, what's, what's that in that Latin phrase? The squids and quid pro quo. Uh, is that what that means? The You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours? Uh, I don't know, something like that. Uh, that's not what this is. This is I look to God and see patience, long-suffering, mercy, encouragement, and I do that. That's the task at hand. Uh, and if we have that, look, that Godward gaze that determines our behavior, then Paul says there, there will be this harmony and together with one voice you'll glorify God. That's the picture the world's supposed to see of God's people. Whether they're all together at Grace Bible Church or whether that's Christians from Grace Bible Church and Crossway Bible Church down on Woods Chapel or whatever other churches are nearby. We could, you know, whatever those churches are, they're God's people. 
and they should have this one gaze where they're looking at God and seeing his character, and they're trying to live it out to one another um, in their marriages, in their parenting. They're trying to be parents of all patience and encouragement. In social media, they're, they're, they're trying to be people of great patience and encouragement. In the workplace, even if it's not perceived purely as Christian character, they're trying to demonstrate good works that appear as patience and encouragement because that's who God is. And so if we're to do these good works so that people glorify our Father in heaven, well, then this verse is kind of fleshing that out. Some of those good works are going to look like being a person of patience, not easily riled up, uh, you, you don't want to look like the rioters of Minnesota or Ferguson. You don't want to look like the crazy people screaming for their cause on the news TV channels. Uh, you don't need to look like that because that's not who you are. You might have equal passion, but it's not going to come out in this frenzy, in this anger, in this out-of-control kind of presentation. Why? Because we imitate a God of patience and encouragement. Uh, and as believers, there's this harmony. There's one voice because we have one purpose, to glorify our God and Father who is in heaven. So, in essence, this isn't unlike a lot of the other one another expressions, to have the same mind as one another, to live in harmony with one another. Here, another harmony, but with this emphasis of that means patience and that means encouragement. Uh, That's not to the exclusion of a lot of other things. So in your parenting, yes, you need to be patient and encouraging, and sometimes you need to be rather strict and full of admonition. Uh, And the long-suffering has run out, and we need a different approach. Uh, I understand that, but for most of us, I think a little bit of patience And the thought of giving encouragement uh, probably is something that would be helpful in our relationships this week. All right, can we think of any Bible examples of patience or encouragement that produces harmony? Any examples of that harmony I thought of Acts 1, all the disciples and the women are in the upper room and it says they're there in harmony or in one accord. And it was as if the death of Christ and his resurrection, it was finally kind of settling in and now these days later as they're awaiting Pentecost, it finally kind of dawns on them that this is really the real deal and it was kind of easy to be united around this new mission and cause. Um, Anything else you can think of? Maybe just a little bit odd, but it still fits, is uh, the time when I was hearing uh, something I was listening to this week, uh, Solomon taking over for David after his death. And prior to his death, David had been very patient and generated a lot of harmony over Joab and the way he treated others. And, shed innocent blood, the scripture says, and all of those things, and it, it kept the harmony going. Of course, he told Solomon, avenge that blood now. Um, but during his lifetime, until his death, that patience 
generated harmony to a certain extent that didn't rock the kingdom. Yeah, so Old Testament examples. David uh, being long-suffering towards some of, well, allies slash foe. Joab's an interesting character. Um, but oftentimes in the kings, there's, there's an interesting balance between when they would kill uh, and when they would be merciful. So the theme's going to be all through Scripture. We're going to be forced to reckon with, how do I know when to be harsh and firm and really strong against sin? And how do I know when to be merciful and, and long-suffering? And part of the answer there is the Holy Spirit has to uh, help you. And by keeping in step with the Spirit as a parent or as a friend, you know when it needs to be the encouragement more kind of tipped the scale that way and when it needs to be a little bit more exhortation. And I need to tell you the truth here. Um, so don't, don't panic thinking, I don't know when to do which. Just walk in the Spirit and we'll get that right. Down then, our next verse continues. Uh, having this idea of patience and encouragement, that's what's guiding our relationships to one another so that there is harmony, unity, one voice, Verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. Uh, simple word to receive. Um, throughout the, the Bible you would, or New Testament, you'd see, you know, and they, they gave them uh, bread and wine and they received it. It's just a real simple transactional kind of word. Uh, so to, to welcome people, to receive them, to accept them. It's interesting that this verse tells us to welcome others, which I I think we can pretty easily understand relationally. Uh, We all know what it is to go to a new place and feel unwelcomed. It was probably a couple years ago. We went to a, a different church on a Sunday where we weren't having services here. And frankly, most of the time we stay home and do something at home. That Sunday, the roads really weren't bad down south, so we decided to go to another church just for the experience of it and meet some other people and such. And, and our kids came out of there saying, nobody talked to us. And we were like, good, good, now you know. Now you know what it's like for somebody new to come in, and everybody's happy and friendly, but they don't bring that happiness and friendliness to you. They don't make you feel a part of that. Uh, So it was a good experience uh, for them uh, to kind of be on the other end of that. We we know that feeling, and yet it's hard to remember that when we come and we know the faces and we find our place and we enjoy it. We're kind of glad to go and see these people, not thinking in our minds somebody might show up and they don't know any people, and it's going to be really awkward for them. But they think it's right. They're trying to find a church, they're trying to find a place to worship, and the command of Scripture is we're supposed to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And so that, that little addition that the Holy Spirit has Paul write is very instructive to us um, because we can now know something of what it looks like for us to welcome others. This becomes the model for my welcoming others. Well, how did Christ welcome me? And it becomes the means. Because I've been welcomed by Christ, I am now enabled 
to welcome others. I have that same welcoming love in me now. So when Paul says, welcome others as Christ has welcomed you, he's saying you're able to do this because you've been welcomed. You have the love of God. And you're able to do this because you can look at the manual and see exactly what it looks like, and all you have to do is step away and do it. Um, So there's just no excuse for not being welcoming people. It has nothing to do with if you're a good cook or if you have a nice home or, you know, fancy dishes. Don't, Don't associate welcome and hospitality with Elizabethan, you know, or Victorian decorations or something. That... we've made this a big cloudy mess instead of just thinking, what does the Bible say about how Christ welcomed us? So let's let's try to think of a few thoughts here to flesh that out. What, What could Paul be referring to elsewhere in the Bible when he says, as Christ has welcomed you? What do we know of Christ's welcoming that would instruct our welcoming of others? Verses, phrases, anything that we can begin shaping and understanding here. What do you think? Going into the homes of the tax collectors. All right, so an example, going into the homes of tax collectors, sinners, the hated people of society, at least by the religious crowd. And so Jesus, friend of sinners, remember, was first an insult. Um, What kind of person would do this? Tax collectors collaborated with the Judaizers and the Romans and contributed to fleecing the people, so they were hated. Uh, And yet Jesus is willing to sit down and engage them. What else? What else would... Define the welcome that Jesus gives us. Well, the woman at the well. Pardon? The woman at the well. Woman at the well. And also the lady, the woman who was caught in adultery. And the woman caught in adultery. Both women bring a lot of baggage to a relationship or a conversation. Um, and yet Jesus is very clear in both of those examples that this, this is important, this is significant in the life of that individual, but also for those who are going to see it. And in both cases, he instructs the others in that situation, having already ministered very personally to the, to the women. What else? Yeah, Daniel? Jesus with Peter after he had sinned and gone back to fishing. He's laid out food for him as a conversation. Yeah, so here's like a like the very physical hospitality of Jesus in John 21, fixing the breakfast on the shore for the guy that stood across the courtyard, seeing him, Jesus, be beaten and, be, and led off to execution, and he's denying that he even knows him three times. Uh, and yet there's that welcoming there. It's not, here's the list of offenses, and we need to deal with it. It's, it's come, come close. And he, and he draws him in, for that restoration and reconciliation. What else? Yeah. Thinking about just God, Emmanuel, um, as a picture of welcoming in the sense that the presence of God and the nearness of God is a part of his uh, inviting us and abiding with us. Um, And then was just thinking about Romans 5, 6, and 7, um, that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, 
but one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one, one might even dare to die. But God showed his love for us, verse 8, uh, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, um, which is quite the welcome. So here that welcome is defined by love. Uh, it's defined by a choice. God demonstrated his love to us. Um, Deuteronomy 7 reminds us it's not based on merit that God loved us. Um, so all this welcoming that we think of in the gospel, it's not by merit. It's by God's choice. He sets his love on us. It's demonstrable. So welcoming isn't something that happens in your head alone. You know, you can't sit here and not talk to anybody new and think of yourself as a welcoming person. It's demonstrable. God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Um, even as Paul mentioned, the uh, God with us, the, the incarnation reminds us that God's welcoming was actually tied to what we studied last time, that pursuing uh, love, um, that strong word for pursue that was actually persecute in some translations. Uh, God pursues, so you, you know, you think of his mission when Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. So sometimes your welcoming might be inviting somebody over and they say no, and you're like, well, I'll get them next week. And they say no the next week, and you're like, what night's free for you? None this week. What about next week? And you just don't give up because it's a pursuing welcome. Uh, you're going to make sure that person doesn't slip through the cracks of you know, our relationships. So this welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, I, I'm sure there's some song we'll sing this morning that will make us think like, oh yeah, that's the gospel. That's how God has received us or welcomed us. Oh yeah, that's how I'm supposed to live to others. But I don't know that person. Well, Romans 5 says we were God's enemies. Or, well, I don't know if we even have the same likes or dislikes. Well, that has nothing to do with it. There are people in your own Family, your kids don't have the same likes and dislikes. Uh, well, they live far away. I don't know if they'd want to come all the way to our house on a weeknight. Or are we just trying to find some label for our disobedience? Like, stop doing that. What if that person is desperate for relationships? There are people that come here and they say that it's such a friendly church. I've never been in a church where everybody wants to stay around and talk. And we hear things like that and we're like, what, what do you do at your church? Like, I mean, we all know it's a little harder during the week to have, like, lots of people over and lots of conversations, but, boy, at least once in a while when you're with God's people, try to enjoy some kind of togetherness. So welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you and understand that that may be uh, one of the great gifts you have to offer in the church for the common good. Adam, I was also thinking about the little children. Remember how the apostles were going to shoo them away? Christ said, no. no. Yeah, let the little children come. Uh, I thought of Paul when he's converted. Everybody knows him as well, Saul when he's converted. Everybody knows him as this persecutor of the church. And they're even saying things like, well, how do we know he's really a true believer? Like, maybe this is a trick to get in the churches. Even when God comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, I have a job for you. I need you to take care of somebody. And sure, it's Saul of Tarsus. And you can read in Acts 9, Ananias is like, oh, 
oh, wait a minute. Um, he is actually, and he like kind of informs God that that's not a good character right there. And yet God says, no, he's, he's my chosen vessel to give the gospel. And right now he needs somebody to welcome him. Um, and the apostles do that as well. And Paul's testimony is they received me even when no one else would. Um, we need to be those kind of people. Now, somebody help me here with a warning. When we hear the language of welcoming and affirming, how can that go wrong in our day and age? I pull out of my neighborhood, and what used to be the Methodist church is now some kind of spiritual community. It has like four words on their sign, and one of them is affirming. What do we think that means? What's the danger here when we start talking about we should welcome everyone and affirm everyone? Clearly, the danger is, Jonathan? Well, my mind goes to Revelation when uh, God is talking to the churches and he tells one of the churches, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who's teaching and seducing my servants to do all these bad things. Um, They were tolerating this figure that was leading them astray. We have to define our terms. Um, Welcoming, affirming are are good words, and they are words that carry virtue. If we read in the pages of Scripture the heart of Christ for sinners, um, we should be welcoming, affirming people. However, those words have been hijacked. Um, So you might say, well, I'm affirming that person in that they're made in the image of God. There's someone who needs to hear the gospel. They're part of the nations. We're supposed to tell them. Well, sure, but that, unfortunately, if you use those words today, you'd better give a full explanation or those words will carry the definitions that are so prevalent now. Um, it's the danger of these hijacked terms that are good. And, you know, we could even go wrong by just saying, at our church, we seek to love everybody. Because somebody's going to hear that or read that as, oh, oh, good, that's the church I want to go to because they're not going to make a big deal about gay marriage or something. They just love everybody. So we have to be clear with what is true, what do we mean when we say these words, lest our welcoming or our receiving of people becomes interpreted as we go along with the way they think they should live. Uh, It's called speaking truth. Right. So Ephesians, we speak the truth in love. So we, we need to know what God has said and, and speak the truth there. Um, and, but, and we've always known this. We should be loving people. The, what was it, the Westboro or Westwood Baptist all those years in the 80s and 90s that you know, just made hate kind of the definition of truth. Um, And somehow that that puts us in a false dilemma. We feel like we have to choose one or the other. We either have to be welcoming or we have to be truthful. But the reality is they weren't speaking the truth in love. So there's no dilemma. What they did was wrong. We should be able to step back and say, what is true? I need to share that. And how do I do that in love? Well, Go back to the woman at the well or the woman taken in adultery, these two cases that were referenced. We just don't see a vitriolic message gushing out of Jesus and everyone standing there thinking like, now that's the truth. Man, he really dished it out. And It's like, no, it, it, was, it was clear truth. 
and not even in real tempered words to the woman at the well when she says, I don't have a husband. He's like, well, you're right. The one you have now isn't your husband, but you've had five. Well, that's not a jab. That's not a, that's not a zinger. That's just saying, I know you don't want to share this, but here's how bad it really is. But that's okay. However unsatisfying that is, if you take of this water, you'll never thirst again. So it was truth, but it was in love. It cut right to it. You're bankrupt. But here's the windfall of the gospel. So the truth in love, and when we hear welcome one another, just know we, we have an added burden now of, of explaining or defining or thinking carefully about how we communicate loving people, welcoming people, receiving people. And also, I guess what's going to my mind, it's speaking the truth, and how we do it in the flesh, which can then be judgmental in the flesh. Are we speaking under the leading of the Holy Spirit, ministry under the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Power of the Holy Spirit, even in deciding how to speak in love, um, that's not something we manipulate and use as a human tool of communication. We're, we're, we're literally relying on the Spirit in those moments because sometimes you'll be disgusted by the sin. You'll be, you'll be mad at, at the way it's being presented. But the, the biblical admonition is with temperance, self-control, we communicate the truth in love. So welcome one another. Put that to practice this week. Uh, knowing that in our day and age, that comes with some extra work. Well, we look down a little further, Romans 15, 14. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Paul's writing to the Christians at Rome, So obviously this is kind of a general characteristic of the people hearing this letter read. And he's affirming. He's he's giving uh, a testimony of, he calls it here, uh, he's satisfied. That word is persuaded. So you might have persuaded there. Uh, He says, I'm convinced. I've seen it. I, I know you people. And generally speaking, of course, to the congregation he's writing to, I, I, I feel this sense of satisfaction or I'm convinced that you are full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Now, obviously, we know what Paul has to say about the Holy Spirit. So he's not isolating these people and saying, you're really good and other people need the Holy Spirit to be good. No, he, it's all together here. He's saying the Spirit is at work in you so that it's manifesting fruit, goodness, one of the fruit of the Spirit. So goodness is evident. Knowledge is on display, essentially, which is an odd concept because we think of knowledge being up in the head and we're thinking it through. But he says, no, it, that, that's on display because that knowledge that you're filled with is spilling out on others. You're able to instruct one another. And that word instruct is where we get that uh, the nuthetic counseling. Nuthetic is just a Greek word dragged right into English. It has no English meaning. It's a Greek word in English letters. 
new thetic. New meaning the mind and tithemi, the verb to put or to place. So when you put new and that verb together, it means to put in the mind of somebody. So you're filled with all knowledge, but it's spilling out and you're putting it into somebody else's head, he says. That's how he described the church at Rome. You're full of goodness and you love the word, so you're filled with knowledge, but you're always applying it to other people and their needs. And when they say, man, I'm really struggling with this, that knowledge spills out onto them and you put it into their head so that they go home thinking, boy, I got to remember God is faithful, you know, money's tight this month. And that person reminded me God's faithful, he'll provide. And so I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to work hard and trust the Lord. And somebody put that in your head and now you're living right. You're trusting the Lord. You're thinking on good things. Um, And Paul says, that's what I've seen you all doing. And so I'm convinced, I'm persuaded, I'm confident in a sense that you've figured it out. You get in the word and then you share the word with others so now it's in them. And nobody individually has to be the greatest scholar ever because you're kind of all in this together. And maybe you come one Sunday and you're not really on your A game and you kind of just down in the dumps and everything's bad and you're just not thinking full of faith, but somebody else is and they have something good to say to you. They share the knowledge that they're filled with. Uh, They instruct, they admonish, uh, they put into your head and it works. So can you think of any admonishing examples? Either that word or examples in scripture where it happened? Wolves in sheep's clothing. <clears throat> yeah. Often comes, it sounds good. It looks good. The wolves in sheep's clothing, and, and Paul has to, he has to go after them and warn the church. Give them the truth. Uh, Jesus with Peter. Jesus and Peter. Which, which incident? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jesus says, I, I got to go to the cross. This is, this is the hour. And Peter's like, I'm standing in the way because I'm not going to let that happen. Get behind me, Satan. Well, those, those are harsh words. That's an admonishment. He, he was telling Peter, you're, you're not thinking right. You think your idea is good, but it's not. Don't, you don't want you don't want to do that. Well, at times, he admonished the Pharisees. And those are... Pretty harsh admonitions uh, because of their unbelief. Matthew 23, you can read all the woes. Paul and Peter. Paul and Peter. Is that at the table? Rearrangements, you know? Peter's sitting there with the Gentiles and two all the Judaizers come in and suddenly picks up his table tray and wants to move over with the Jews because, oh yeah, that's right, I can't be seen with these Gentiles. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face. I told him, No, let me put truth in your mind. Uh, And he did. Um, This is what we do with our children in Ephesians 6. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition, uh, the nuthetic counseling. You put it in their heads. You you can't make them love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and might, but you can put it in their head so that they'll never forget all those years when they were in that home, this is what they thought was important. This is what they kept telling me. Um, and that's the nature of parenting. Uh, we, 
We do all we can to put the truth in their head, but we have to have faith that God's going to bring about the change. So you could probably go through Scripture and find almost any conversation between believers, and you're going to be somewhere in the realm here. Uh, But just know that even when we can look around our body and think of the general statement, yes, there's goodness, there's knowledge, it's being shared. Um, that, that's not, Paul's not saying, so everybody just chill out now. We, we hit that benchmark, we're good. He's saying, no, that, that, let, fan that flame, keep doing that. Um, this week, when you post or email or do whatever, talk on the phone, think, is there anything I can insert there? Is there any plug I can make to help that person? Think right to encourage them. Uh, that's what we want to be known for. One last one here, uh, Romans 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right, so I think in the past I've suggested the elders would be in the lobby to do these greetings. I'll stay up here. Uh, well, here, here's where we need to practice our, our hermeneutics, our science of interpretation. Um, because the danger is, we read a passage like this, and we say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, we know what that means, greet one another. The holy kiss, now, that was cultural, so we don't do that anymore. So we really, it's, it's, we really don't have to do what this verse says. Because kissing each other is cultural, and that we don't do that in our culture. Well, it, there, there's something there that, that is aiming at the truth, but we, we can't ever say, um, that is, that's old, so we don't do that one anymore. And let's see, that, that command, that was probably different. I think that's a Greek thing. We don't do that anymore. Um, That's not how Bible interpretation works. We don't just pick and choose what we think is old or relevant. Um, No, interpretation starts with, we we ask ourselves, what did the original author intend for that original audience? What did they hear? Uh, And that does take at times a little bit of historical or cultural understanding. Um, Don't be overwhelmed by that. You don't have to be an archaeologist or an anthropologist just to read your Bible. But sometimes when you get to questions of interpretation, the hard work, you might have to dig into a little bit of Bible culture or history. And and that's not hard to find. There's plenty of resources that can give you basic understandings of the times. But we want to know what was the author saying, ultimately what was God saying by the Holy Spirit through the author to the people that heard this very letter called Romans. And clearly, they would have heard greet one another with a holy kiss and not like looked around and smiled at each other like, oh yeah, what's this about? Um, Because that's how they greeted one another. The point was they were to be communicating the love of God to their brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so the holy kiss isn't isn't the weight of the command, it's just the expression of the command. And in their culture, they did hear the command. They heard what they needed to hear. 
you need to be not only thinking you're a lover of God's people, it needs to be demonstrated. And not even just in like meeting their needs and giving them truth, but in the literal physical affirmation at times. And so we need to then think, okay, so that was the message that came to them. That's what it meant when it was written and to the hearers. Because the meaning doesn't change. The meaning doesn't mean one thing for them and it means something else for us. No, it means one thing. The only question is, are there any details surrounding the meaning that would have been far more easily understood in that culture? And now that means we have to build a bridge to our culture and think, what does it look like in our culture? Same meaning to to show the love of God because you're family. And and think about it. You know, in this first century, the Christians are being driven from their communities. They're losing their jobs. They're losing the inheritance of their lands that they farmed. And so people are selling their property and helping feed the Christians, and they're scattered abroad. It's not easy to be a Christian. When you found Christians, it was like a family reunion, and your favorite cousin you haven't seen in years, and you give them a big hug, big slap on the back, whatever it is, a big kiss. And the holy kiss isn't some unique religious symbol. It's just the, it's just the reality that there is a bond that connects us that transcends temporal relationship. It transcends any sensual relationship, and not sensual even in a bad way, but just the reality of, the holy kiss wasn't all about the physical. It was, it was a connection that showed we are together in Christ, a holy kiss, kind of a, a blend of the very physical and the very spiritual in one. Well, that happens when God saves us and makes us the family of God, and yet we are clearly very physical here as the family of God. So it meant something in that day, and it still means something for us today. So we need to ask questions following up. The first question, what did it mean in its original intent? Now we start asking, okay, how do we keep this instruction? How do we obey this command? How does that meaning affect us? And then it's really not too hard to think of us saying we we would demonstrate the love of God. We would show a family connection with Maybe the handshake, that, that gets pretty broad even in our culture. We shake hands with all kinds of people. Maybe it's an arm around the shoulder. You know, maybe you take somebody by the arm and give them an extra little squeeze. You know, we're not really saying, well, everybody should hug everyone else's wife and husband. And, you know, it, it gets kind of weird somewhere along the way, doesn't it? Um, but the idea is we, we shouldn't be afraid as men and women, to, to think that not all physical touch, handshakes, a holding of the arm, hand on the shoulder, there are ways to communicate that are not sensual. They are holy, but they communicate, we are family, and I, I want to feel your pain, or I want to celebrate with you and give you a hug. Those are good things. They're okay. Not everybody responds the same way to this kind of affirmation and expression. So if it's not your thing, I would say if somebody wants to put their arm on your shoulder, grin and bear it, all right? Uh, Receive that as their effort to greet you with the holy kiss and be glad they're not kissing you, all right? 
You might not be a giver of expressions this way, but at least, at least take that hand and you might be a germaphobe and you know what? Live by faith. Use a little extra hand sanitizer, but don't shy away from people. Now, if you're hacking and coughing, you know, we'll give you a pass. Um, somehow we wrestle with this and we think, can we do this? And I think the answer is we can. And you're actually probably pretty good at it. Um, sure, there's the boundaries. There's, there's very reasonable spiritual reasons not to have all kinds of physical contact with anybody and everybody. But knowing that... Let's also factor in this passage, which does acknowledge that there are physical expressions that can communicate we are family. All right? Roy, do you have a thought here? Well, in the day, they didn't kiss everybody. They didn't kiss Gentiles, obviously. They probably didn't kiss anybody from another town. It seems like if you look at Song of Solomon, at one point she wishes in her head that he was her brother so she could kiss him in the street and not be looked at reproachfully. So it does seem to have, in tradition, a strong friendship or a strong familial linkage. So there is something about a difference in a very warm greeting in it. Yeah, and you know, Gary, you've been all over with the Air Force. I guess if you had lived in some other countries of the world, you might not be as taken back by that, you know, a quick lean in and whether they actually kiss or kind of fake the kiss on the cheek. Um, they might not have any of this last five minutes of discussion because they would just say, sure, we know how to greet people that we connect with. Um, we just have to work a little harder at it. And without, you know, Assuming the worst of everybody or, you know, or pigeonholing personalities that are more physically affectionate. It's just like, no, just here's the essence of what it meant then and now. We are family, and we should not be uncomfortable around each other. I was going to say that uh, well, Becky just leaned over and said, well, growing up in my church, which was in New York, New York, that we kiss everybody, um, which is true. Been there, got, got the kisses. That's, that's fascinating. I, I didn't even think Strongly that. Middle Eastern. A lot of people are from Hispanic. Middle Eastern and Hispanic, Latin American cultures. Um, I went on a mission trip to Papua New Guinea, was there for like a month, and was warned that the men are physically affectionate and just be, don't push it away. It's a sign of like endearing friendship and like familial affection. And had a teenage kid during a service sitting next to me he put his hand right on my inner thigh and just left it there. <laughs> and, uh, God's grace abounds. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's going to be some of it, you, you know? Because, one, you might not feel like you're all that close to some people in the church, but we need to get over that and not become their very dearest, best friend, perhaps, but welcome them as you've been welcomed. And so... Uh, who knows what will unfold in the lobby after the service today. Um, I've got something to do. I'm going to dart out that back door after the service. <laughs> Lord, thank you for uh, the help in understanding your word. E even, even the holy kiss, Lord. We, we want to treat with, with the, the weight of these are your words, and they were given for us to profit from. And so 
perhaps someone would be encouraged by a, a simple uh, gesture, a handshake, a, a hug, whatever it may be, would, would you uh, teach us to be loving people? Um, and in every expression of physical love, may we be reminded of, of your perfect love for us as we've celebrated your welcoming of us by giving Christ so that we would have access to eternal joy. For this we thank you, for this we've gathered to worship, and so bless our hour to come as we make our sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise for what you've done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.